we see this as something that is happening to other people. Uh, we think that we can escape it, and in fact, in our lifetimes, possibly can. I mean, if you take someone like me, I'm 70, I'm pretty well off, I've got interesting positions and things to do. If I choose to ignore the climate crisis, I'll probably get away with it. Um, and that's true of most leaders around the world, most leaders in business. They're probably right if they don't do a heck of a lot, if they nod their heads to it, they'll be okay. Their kids won't, their grandkids won't, the planet won't be, but they're still looking for an easy way and that's uh, the tragedy of humankind in many ways. Kia ora, I'm Troy, here as CEO and welcome to Stirring the Pot. Thanks for connecting. If you're new, here's what you can expect. We're going to be talking the tough stuff, the things that keep us metalheads up at night. There are many challenges facing our industry and equally many opinions on how we should tackle them. Stirring the Pot provides a facilitated forum to discuss and challenge these viewpoints. So let's get to the nuts and bolts of it. Today we're talking with Rob Campbell, who has been described as a colossus of corporate New Zealand holding over 30 years' experience on countless boards, including Chair of Sky City, Somerset Holdings, Araaki, Tourism Holdings, and more. Valued for his acumen, work ethic, and impressive financial performance of the companies he's worked with, he's also fostered a reputation as an outspokenly progressive business leader. Infusing his roles with an awareness of social responsibility and encouraging other directors to adopt more holistic ways of working with their businesses and the community. Uh, Rob, we're excited to have you because I don't think you will remember this, but way back in 2019, I saw you on a panel, I think it was an IOD event, um, but it had Professor Will Steffen from ANU. Um, and Will is one of uh, the world's leading researchers in um, climate change. And I was quite taken aback by the panel because I was really excited to see that industry and um, boards were taking climate change really seriously. Um, and I don't mean any disrespect to the people who were on the panel, but I was really disappointed with how um, people were responding to the really serious presentation that he gave. Um, and a lot of them were saying, oh, that's really scary. Um, and I, I, I felt like it was playing down the seriousness of the science behind what he was presenting. And you were on that panel and you were the one who was really calling it out. And I sent you, I immediately um, found you on LinkedIn and sent you a message saying, I'm really enjoying what you're saying. And you, you replied and said, thanks. And I was like, oh, that's great. I don't care if it's just like a couple of words, we've connected. So yep, I'm really excited. <laughs> Will Stephan is great. He just continues to carry the story as far and as wide as he can. He does a great job, but how he puts up with so many people disrespecting his view, I've got no idea. A man of amazing patience. Yeah, exactly. And my background is, is actually marine science. And um, when I was studying marine science, um, of course, a lot of the climate change um, was science was actually based on marine findings and so changes in ocean currents and um, ocean temperatures. All of this was um, relating back to climate science. And I remember the um, few scientists back then who were really saying there's something serious happening and no one was taking them seriously. And here we are now 20, 30 years later and we're in crisis um, how do you see boards responding to that? Are they taking it seriously? 
Uh, no, short answer. Uh, I mean, there's every board agenda now has uh, climate change in some uh, form or another uh, on it. I can't think of any that that have climate crisis uh, on it, which is what it is. Uh, I think it's. I was going to say in my view, but I don't. I think it's wider than my view. It simply is what it is. Um, it is still uh, primarily a uh, an issue of what is um, kind of flipped off as ESG, uh, a way of appealing to uh, some parts of the investor audience, possibly consumer audience to a lesser extent, but taken seriously in terms of the existential threat uh, that it is. Uh, no, not at all. And... and uh, I don't think it's imminent. Uh, until the waves are crashing on the beach, I don't think it's going to happen. Mm. And what do you think is the role of government versus the role of boards? Because I feel like um, we are all kind of secretly hoping that there will be some changes in legislation that forces business to uh, uh, change the way that they do things. But that doesn't – it's not – playing out proactively in the, around the board tables. Um, it seems like we are waiting for that legislative um, reform. What, what do you, what's your view on that? Yeah, look, I think, I think that's right. Um, I, government seems to be drifting on this to me, uh, not just in Aotearoa, but, but around the world. Uh, the governments have been good at uh, recognising, but sometimes even, I think, legitimising uh, the climate crisis as a process that they can control, which is not an existential threat, but is something that can be managed, which is sort of the mythology of, of governments uh, these days. Uh, so they project this as something that man can be managed. If not now, then the next conference will find a way to manage it or technology will solve it or some other thing will happen. So we're all looking uh, for an easy way out. Um, uh, funnily enough, as I was driving out here, I had a, um, I was listening to a song which is very old because I am by, by Hunters and Collectors uh, called the Holy Grail, and uh, one part of it ends. Uh, I've been looking for an easy way to escape the cold light of day. I've been high and I've been low, but I've got nowhere else to go. And it made me think actually about the issue we're discussing. We do look for easy ways out. Uh, we try everything. Um, you know, Elon Musk is always try even trying to find whether we can live on Mars as, as if that were some kind of an answer to destroying this planet. Uh, but we're all looking for it in some way and uh, we just, at the moment, are not, hitting the, are not hitting the wall. And I think the reason for that, and this is true of business and government, is that we see this as something that is happening to other people. Uh, we think that we can escape it, and in fact, in our lifetimes, possibly can. I mean, if you take someone like me, I'm 70, I'm pretty well off, got interesting positions and things to do. If I choose to ignore the climate crisis, I'll probably get away with it. Um, and that's true of most leaders around the world, most leaders in business. 
they're probably right. If they don't do a heck of a lot, if they nod their heads to it, they'll be okay. The kids won't, their grandkids won't, the planet won't be, but they're still looking for an easy way and that's uh, the tragedy of humankind in many ways. One of the uh, things that HERA is doing in collaboration with Puhoro STEM Academy is they are uh, giving us regular training on Mataronga Māori and Te Ao Māori. And we were talking about business planning and they suggested to us that if we are looking at engaging with Māori, we really should be looking at rather than a three or five year plan, a 500 year plan. And this is, I've been really thinking about this because um, I work in, I have always worked in innovation and, and having, you know, anything more than even a 12 month plan really doesn't make sense. But now I'm starting to question that. What What do you think would happen differently if we all started thinking about a 500-year plan? I've been thinking about this recently. You've obviously been reading my mind uh, somehow. You know, I'm not sure that the issue is the length of the time that we plan. Part of the problem is planning. Planning implies that you can control things. It implies that humanity is at the center and that we can define it, whether it's for six months or 12 months or 500 years. I suspect doesn't at the end of the day make an enormous amount of difference. What we have to be able to do is to adapt to what is around us, to allow other things to adapt to, to not think that we can stamp our authority or stamp our will uh, on this. There's a very good article I read recently by Dr. Anne Salmon, which was happened to be about uh, Taitariti, but was really broader than that. And the point she was making was, in a Eurocentric way, we tend to think about everything as kind of binary. It's either one thing or the other. Uh, and the critical thing she had taken from Tikanga Māori was, actually, that's not the way the world is. The world isn't binary. The world twists and turns and has multiple levels. And the illusion is that you can plan. Mm -hmm. And uh, in an odd sort of quirk of history, the the kind of the mastermind or the genesis of all the thinking about free markets, um, a guy called Hayek actually wrote a book about this and he called um, this idea that you could plan things the fatal conceit. And it's actually a great phrase about humanity. Um, what he thought actually was that the fatal conceit was that you could plan anything and instead you should rely on the market which was a rather limited view of the world. But the idea that planning itself was a problem, I think, has a lot in it. And that we should, if we start thinking about ourselves in relation to the world, accepting that other aspects of the world are as important or more important than humanity is, that's a better answer. And then whatever humanity's plan is, doesn't much matter. Uh, there's a great uh, report done in the UK recently by a professor called, sorry, I forget his first name, but Professor Dasgupta, and it's about biodiversity, and his real, done for the UK government, it's a very good report, and he draws attention to the destruction of biodiversity on the earth, and he would really, I think, posit my words, not his, that the climate crisis is actually not necessarily the core crisis. The climate crisis is an expression of this 
ongoing endeavor, this conceit of mankind's, that mankind can control what is happening on the planet, and that we do that by destroying physical things, by destroying uh, other forms of life, um, and always feeling that we can fix it, that it will be better, that we're in control, and we're not. Mm. And so the thing I think that that's a pr pretty big range between Hayek and Anne Salmon and Professor Das Gupta, but nevertheless in there I think is the lesson that I'm learning f about all this. Mm -hmm. I feel like um, science has almost been vilified in the past for being the early warner of all of these crises happening and then suddenly science becomes the saviour and people are relying upon the scientists then to then solve it. Um, and oftentimes the same scientists who've been saying, ding, 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 we need to pay attention, we need to change our ways, and then all of a sudden the scientists are under pressure to um, find solutions or take mitigative actions when all along we all had a role to play as individuals to actually pay attention to the science mm -hmm. and respond in our lives. You know, an interesting thing is that you don't hear many good scientists tell you to follow the science because they don't objectify science in the way that politicians like to do. Mm -hmm. Science is basically a method, after all. Everything that science has held to be true at one point or another has subsequently been proven to be untrue, because what science does is keep trying to prove what is true or untrue, what might be true. And that scientists, great scientists, see this as evolving understanding. They never think that they really understand it. Only politicians and business people journalists decide that the science is something you should follow. Um, so I think one of our faults is that we objectify it. We say, that's a thing. There it is. One thing, not another. There's one way to do it. Well, there's not, you know. I mean, I'm prepared to bet that the world of viruses is smarter than the current world of scientists and that the scientists are desperately trying to keep up and doing a fantastic job, by and large, in developing human understanding of viruses, but they're behind the game and they know they are. Mm. Um, yeah, well, definitely the viruses are evolving quicker than our scientific capacity and knowledge is. Yeah, that's right. They're brainier than what we are. That's <laughs> another way of saying it. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, you mentioned a couple of things that I wanted to uh, speak with you about too. Um, one of them was Titerit. Um, how are you seeing that being um, how how much awareness do you think there is around tetirity and our uh, honouring of it um, around board tables uh, look it, it's, imp it's improved because when I started my career in governance it was never mentioned at all it simply was not a factor in the world of politics or business um so it's improved, but uh, I don't think that I'm trying to think of an organisation. Lots of organisations pay lip service to their treaty obligations or to the principles of the treaty. Um, many organisations and people within business that I know, and I would include myself in this, are making a genuine effort to understand what the full implications of the treaty might be and relationships between Tangata Whenua and Tauiwi, 
but every time I think I learn something, uh, I hit something that unlearns me. <laughs> it's a very bad bit of language, isn't it? But it's it's what happens. There's there's a deeper level. There's another thing that I don't understand. Uh, if I just give you an example of that at the moment, which has been brought to all of our attention by some Māori researchers, is so we have a workplace. We say, oh, yes, the treaty. Yes, that's important, either because government says it is or because we might genuinely think, hey, this is an important thing to get right here. And then we think, okay, well, we don't have many Māoris employed in positions of authority, so we'd better find some. And let's just say we do go out and hire some. What we then do is, is expect those people to not only do the other job they do, but to also be our leaders in how we think about Te Tiriti. And in one of my businesses just last night, uh, I was discussing this with our, with our HR manager and she had recognised, we had both sort of at the same time, I think, recognised that we kept asking the Māori who were employed in our organisation to help us implement a better relationship around the treaty, but we still paid them at the rate that they were being paid for their other job. In other words, it was on top and it was more work. It wasn't recognised as being something that was of genuine value to the business. And by and large, they were helping people on multiples of their salary to fulfil an obligation. And so... Uh, uh, a lot of what is going on is is colonisation goes on forever until you stop it. And so what we're doing very often is recolonizing the whole time. And I think there's a lot of recolonizing going on even within the framework of saying that we're working to recognise uh, the treaty. And, and, you know, the treaty itself is, at one level, is just a thing. The issue is do we recognise who we are who Tangata Whenua, uh, we want all that to be simple, you know, even the settlements. And I hadn't realised this till quite recently, and some friends pointed out in a not too antagonistic way, but were quite firm in telling me I was wrong, which was, well, Rob, you think you're making settlements under the treaty, but you're making them with iwi organisations that you largely created. The Māori world is not as neat and tidy as the Pākehā thinks it is to create these organisations and then make a settlement with them. So A, a one-off settlement will never work, and B, you've very largely made them with organisations that may or may not have have the authority or mana within the Māori world now or in the future to carry that through. So we're just doing an awful lot wrong still. We have, we're at a very, very early stage of this journey, I think. So, you know, I know that some politicians think that we have some elements of separatism in being introduced. Well, you know, she ain't seen nothing yet is what I would say to that. Mm. It's got a long way to go. We've all got a lot of adaptation to do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, there's no use me being ashamed of it, but when I stop and think, I am ashamed that I've lived for 70 years in Aotearoa and my understanding of the world of the indigenous people is so limited. It's pathetically limited.
um, and that's wrong. And I hope that's certainly hope that's not true in another seventy years for people. Mm. Won't be for me. <laughs> yes, that's good. I, I think that um, the word that you used, unlearning. Is a good word. Uh, there is so much unlearning that we need to do and relearning that we need to do to to actually make ourselves aware of these issues. One of the things that um, a board that I'm on has considered is uh, this is for the Workforce Development Councils, uh, which were uh, created uh, under an ordering council, but um, the primary legislation actually is the first piece of legislation in Aotearoa to refer to honouring titirity um, and so it, it's using titirity instead of the treaty and it's also referring to the whole titirity rather than the principles and we have had to interpret how does that apply in terms of governance um, for these workforce development councils and one of the outcomes that we came up with is um, affirmative action around being 50-50, Māori, non-Māori and having co-chairs. And this co-chair model was quite contentious. Um, we we thought that it, re- it was the best to reflect titirity. Um, is that a model that you have experienced or come across and how has that worked? Um, no, I haven't, but it's great that you, you raise it. I have an organisation at the moment where I'm uh, talking with the uh, a number of the other leadership about where I'm chair. Uh, and uh, I believe that uh, for a variety of reasons, it's an organisation that should take a lead in this. Um, and I think the conclusion is that without a co-chair arrangement, we probably never will genuinely do so. Uh, there are many things that are better led from the bottom, but sometimes I think leadership does have a position to take. So... Um, yeah, we we will we will do that. Uh, it's again, you've got to be a little bit careful. The issue of whether you have a chair is an issue, <laughs> let alone a co-chair, mm-hmm. and how you how you do that, how you appoint that person, uh, becomes very important. Uh, who holds the mana to make that appointment? Uh, is a really, really important issue. And, and so where you accord that respect and the process through which you goes, I'm learning, is important. Uh, I believe that in significant public organisations, I mean, I don't think co- we can have a co-chair of everything necessarily. I don't care if we do, but uh, I think it's important that major public organisations do move in this direction. Uh, Otherwise, we won't get where we need to go. I think there are steps on the way. Uh, In other organisations, I think the key is to identify some areas where Māori in particular, where... uh, there's a mana whenua issue, which there typically is in Māoridom, <laughs> but where there is a mana whenua issue, that that is identified and we find forms of co-governance within the business or other organisation uh, that are genuine. Uh, 
sign we have a number of initiatives in different organizations I'm in trying to do that uh, particularly around employment issues uh, so look that's partial is it enough I don't know but I think it is part of the future. One of the other uh, points that you made is around binary and non-binary systems, experiences. And one of the recent um, posts that I was looking at um, that I found quite interesting coming from you um, was a post around, um, I guess, the privilege associated from being um, not non-binary gendered, mm. which isn't probably a privilege that many of us kind of think or associate to. Um, what, what, what is, how do you start having conversations? You know, you've mentioned you're 70. It's not a normal conversation for a 70-year-old man to be having, but it's an important one. How, how, do, you, how do you get into these conversations? <laughs> <laughs> um. I think as I've got older, I have become a bit more reflective and a bit less uh, impulsive, uh, and that's helped. Uh, I've been very lucky to uh, to work with and, and become associated with uh, people who have really challenged uh, the way that I've thought. You know, I kind of wandered out of a reasonably privileged position in uh, in academia. Uh, ran into some union people. They really challenged me as to what I was doing. And, you know, I made a pretty decent effort to work with working class organisations and unions for a decade or two. Um, and, you know, for various reasons, I, I couldn't uh, adequately do that. So, so that kind of ended. And then I spent quite a lot of time in, in business um, and then just, I think, by being fortunate enough to be reasonably open-minded, met people who really challenged the way I was thinking about that in particular culturally. Um, and so uh, was challenged hard by some Māori and Pacifica people as to how it was that someone like me lived in Tamaki Makara and knew so little. Uh, about the cultures of Maria Pacifica, um, so that was that was a great challenge. I mean, many decades before, I had been very involved in the Dawn Raid issues when they when they came up, and I had the comfort of um, being involved in that, fighting the good fight, if you like, learning quite a bit, and then it wasn't a problem for me anymore until out here in Monaco. A couple of years ago, I met some people who were not following my suggestion that they went to the doctor because if they went to the doctor, they would have to become part of the health system and they couldn't become part of the health system because they were overstays. I had no idea there were thousands of overstays still in South Auckland. There's more now. Um, and so I got challenged in those ways, uh, which is great. It's a great you know, a privilege and a, and a real opportunity. Um, and kind of when you stick your head out, which I've done a little bit, people, are, I just have these people come up to me and say, well, that's all very well what you're saying about 
women in business, Rob, but what about disabled people? And you think, oh, bugger, I hadn't really thought about that. And you do, and you sort of, and then, well, that's all very well about gender, but what about people who are non-binary to come back round to your thing? And you think, oh, okay. Um, so it's great when people challenge you, isn't it? Uh, and I mean that the the gender thing is really fascinating. I mean, we all actually know, don't we, that gender is not simply binary. If we think about it seriously, we sit back and think, men, women. Well, actually, it's a bit more complicated than that. Um, but we manage to push it to the back of our minds if it's not a significant issue for us. And so we we have to have it pushed in our face a bit and then we think, oh, yeah. Most people, when they think about it, do not really want to maltreat or exclude or push people around. They just would prefer it if it was a bit easier. And it isn't. So... You know, uh, the, the best thing that happens from being outspoken and saying too much is is that you get challenged more and more and more because people think, oh, I could talk to him about that. Um, so that's, yeah, it's a privilege. And, and that's what I have really enjoyed about your social media comments um, is really around challenging not only other people but accepting those challenges for yourself to, you know, critique what your own mindset and viewpoint is and how that could be altered through looking at perspectives from other uh, organisations or people. Um, the other thing I really find refreshing is a man talking about male privilege um, because even and, – and I wonder also too if there's also an age privilege – um, that kind of comes along for men as well, um, the older statesman, you know, type of example. We had at our Future Forum last year a panel of young people which we wanted them to um, feel empowered to come along and, and really tell us what they thought about our industry because we're obviously, we've got a, a skills shortage, we've got an attractiveness issue um, and we wanted to know from young people's perspectives, what did they think about us? And it was quite challenging for some of our members, um, particularly for males, because they were they were really, you know, hammering home, we see this as a male-dominated, low-tech, traditional industry um, and messy and dirty. And we, we didn't get a great response. So the, we could see there was a... a very big disparity between what we needed to hear and what we were able to listen to and felt comfortable hearing. So how is it, again, I'm kind of asking, how, is, how have you gotten to this point where you can, I, I feel like you're the only person speaking <laughs> about it um, from the male perspective. And uh, I don't know, I think it's an important conversation to have, but it's very fraught because you obviously don't want to alienate men as well and people of certain ages um how do we have that conversation where people aren't feeling as though they're being attacked and and yet are still able to hear what it is that uh young people and women mm -hmm. offer as their experience it, it's it's very hard uh, uh to do that um 
just a couple of a couple of points about it. Uh, I I get talked to quite a bit now by men uh, of my generation, uh, Pago men of my generation, who are feeling pretty threatened, uh, who feel that they can't get onto boards or that they can't get jobs uh, that they otherwise could have aspired to get. And they are quite sad about that. Um, I'll come back to people who can probably less afford to feel sad, but they feel sad. Some feel angry. I'm more sadness than, than anger would be my experience, interestingly enough. Uh, but it's inexorable, isn't it? Because they're right. It is harder for old white men to get jobs on boards if you are going to have younger, brown, women, whatever category you like to apply on there, the arithmetic is remorseless. There are less opportunities for those type of men. Um, and in a, in a sense, it's not their fault that pushers come to shove when they're there and their parents weren't or, or whatever. So there is a sadness about that. I hope it doesn't turn into into anger. Um, and really, honestly, while I kind of like most of these guys, it doesn't actually matter. They don't need the job. They would like to have the job. They would like to have the interest. They'd like to have the prestige, whatever they feel is associated with it, but it doesn't matter. There is a harder thing happening. Um, there's a very good book just recently out in the United States called Deaths by Despair, and it makes the intriguing observation that after about 150 years in the Western world of life expectancy increasing, and with that still going on uh, for just about every category in the United States, there has been a sharp change in life expectancy for white males without a college degree. And the graph is quite dramatic. And the research that's been done on it shows that the change is uh, based on people dying from alcohol, drugs, and suicide. And they call them deaths by despair because it's pretty clear that's what has happened. The factories have closed and their life has no meaning because their meaning was entirely wrapped up in that and they don't see a way out and so they kill themselves slowly or quickly and uh, deaths by despair is dramatic very dramatic for those people but I think we will see elements of despair as society changes as opportunities open up for others many of us will experience that as an enhancement as a richness as an improvement in life there are some people who won't, uh, who will see it as a deterioration in the privilege they once had. Um, even if the privilege wasn't much to be a working class white male in a factory in the United States, it still was better than the black people or the black women or the indigenous people. So there were people worse off, it changes. Uh, so I think we will need to learn to... Um, to, to live with some of that because not everyone's... Well, hang on. The way we've got to learn to live with it is to recognise that no one can be dominant. 
so that, yes, you will lose your dominance, but that doesn't mean that there is a new class of Amazon women or um, of Māori who are going to be tell everyone what to do because we there's a reasonable chance they won't behave the way we did. There's a reasonable chance they're actually better than colonial white males were at running the place, uh, that they'll be more open, uh, they'll be more friendly, they'll, be more, they'll allow more dignity to other people than we did. And uh, that's what we've kind of got to hope. And whether that happens or not, I think will be determined a lot by the way my generation of white males with privilege behave. If we behave badly, those people who we're continuing to deny will get will get ugly. I went to a dinner a few years ago that Bob Geldof was talking at in Auckland, and uh, he started off by holding up a uh, his phone and said, "I want you all to think about this thing because that's the difference in history. It used to be that you guys." had all the privilege in the world and no one knew about it. The problem you have now is that everyone in the world has one of these, these phones, and they can see what you've got and they want it. And they're either going to get it where they are or they're going to come to your place and get it. And that's never been true in the history of the world before. It was easier for you to rule when they didn't know. Now they know. It's a problem for you. Now, it might be a problem for Bob as well, but that's different. <laughs> it's a different question. It was very dramatic, and I think to a large extent it's true. That old game is up. We're transitioning to a, a new game, which hopefully will be better, but how that changes uh, is really up to us. It's, it's, it's up to how open we are to change. Where to from here? Where do you think innovation is going to happen around the board table? Uh I would like to think that people at my stage of life and position can open some doors, can make the path a bit easier, can persuade some people, including themselves, to move out when it's time to move out, to accept that things will happen differently. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think that will necessarily... Uh, change change quickly, uh, but it has to. I hope it does. Uh, so, yeah, people like me, by and large, have got to assess whether they are, I think it was Stokely Carmichael in the Black Power movement back in the 1960s, who said you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. Um, and... That's, I think, what people like me have got to work out. If you think you're contributing to the solution, and particularly if you ask other people, am I still being helpful, and be prepared to listen to them. Uh, if, you, if they don't resoundingly say that you are and don't just say it in a comforting way, I think you know it's time to move on. Get out of the position of power. Make a change. Um, so... Yeah, that's my lesson to myself. So ask the question and listen hard. Act. I've been reading a, a lot of, around um, 
big changes in in terms of sociological research and um, the evidence is overwhelming that it's never the minorities that can make change or defend their position or move themselves forward. It has to really become becoming from the uh, pe- people who are in the position of privilege. They have to hold that space. Um, so I, I know I said that was my, la- my last question, but my real last question is how do you think um, all of us who do have that privilege, how do we hold space to make sure that those who don't have the advantages that we have, how, how do we actually um, be brave enough to actually put ourselves into a potentially um, position of losing power in order to share that power? Well, I think you've got to make a, uh, a definitive decision that you are either going to make change or get out. Um, I've just had a really good challenge, actually. I apparently gave a speech about a year ago to a finance conference which set out what I was going to achieve in the next 12 months or move on. Um, And I've been invited back. (laughs) Uh, So I'm just in the process now of going through what I said I was trying to do and I'm going to mark myself, um, and I think I'll get some other people to mark me too. Um, as it happens, in the areas I set out, um, I've uh, failed. Um, you couldn't objectively give me a pass mark. Um, so I think if I haven't succeeded in this period, I need to get out of those the things where I said that. And hopefully try and find somewhere else where I could do something useful. Um, but I think you've got to be... I mean, the funny thing is you say that and everyone says, oh, you can't do that. But we do that in business every day to everyone that works in our organisations. We're good at doing it to other people and we don't do it to ourselves at the head of the organisations. Boards, we have these evaluation systems which you know, where you select a consultant and I'm yet to see one where the consultant actually says, you know, you're a big problem here, you should push off. Um, maybe one will come to me now. <laughs> uh, but you know, that's what we've got to do. You've got to be prepared to have a self-assessment and, and act on it. Kia ora, it is Greg here, here is Innovation and Transformation Architect. If you've liked what Rob has had to say today about innovating culture and challenging mindsets within your organisation, be sure to check out the show notes and get some more information on Kotahitanga, our HR innovation cluster, a place where we'll be talking about and resourcing you with all the tips and tricks and tools that you need to be able to start seeing change within your organisation. More details are in the show notes. Ever since I saw Rob on a panel talking about climate change and governance, I've wanted to get him on stirring the pot. I'm so glad to have made that happen today. And with that, I'd like to end with the words of Rob himself. I'm very accountable to shareholders, but shareholders are just one group of stakeholders along with employees and the community. That's the area where I try to make a contribution. It's at the heart of what will make a business continue to thrive and contribute to the community. Food for thought till we see you next time. So hit subscribe and if you liked what you heard today, please like, review or share with any metalheads you know. Let's spread the word. 